death, but saddling up anyway. Now, I'm not scared to death, but I like the cut. You guys are all brave. You came out for one of the hardest messages in Ephesians, so no poking or stabbing or pinching when you guys get your turn. When Bonnie and I were in Oregon this last spring, there was a list that was posted up somewhere here in the church, and it had the uh, summer series broken up into the six chapters into 12 different teachings. And I had mentioned to Zeke, because he asked me when he asked me to teach, is there anything I would like to teach on? And I said, well, because I read through, what? The mic's not working? Well, I know, they tried to fix that earlier, but I, I don't know how to fix that, so. But uh, anyway, there was, uh, I had asked if I could maybe teach on Ephesians 2, because I'd read through the book and I uh, was interested in that, and I felt the Lord was kind of telling me maybe that's what he wanted me to teach on. And uh, so I went on to Oregon, and there was a 12 little slots posted somewhere in the church, and I get a text from Zeke and said, well, everything's been taken except uh, the chapter on, or the portion on marriage. Would you mind teaching on marriage? Somebody says, well, that'll teach me for being away. That happened once before at a board meeting, and I won't go into that, but <laughs> the moral of the story is don't be gone when there's something important to be discussed. But anyway, I couldn't decline, obviously, because I've been married for 35 years, and I, uh, well, yeah, amen. And I, I thought to myself, why doesn't anybody else want to teach on marriage? And uh, then uh, my, hypocrisy was, my hypocrisy was exposed when I thought, well, maybe they think I'm more qualified because I've been married longer than anybody. But uh, needless to say, I was given the opportunity to teach on marriage. And um, I'm going to throw in a little brag here for my parents because... Um, in my immediate family, my parents and myself and my three siblings, we have a total of 215 years of marriage to the same spouse. My sister's been married 30 years. Bonnie and I have been married 35. My brother's been married 40. And my other sister's been married 43 years. And my parents have been married 67 years, going on 68. So, yeah, so. my parents obviously... My parent, yeah, well, my parents set the example. My, my dad recently was um, speaking at a men's and retirement group uh, in Monterey where they go to church. And there was some young married man in the audience, and my dad was given the testimony of his marriage and his war experience as a World War II veteran and a POW from Battle of the Bulge. And he went on and gave his spiel, but this young man asked, what is your uh, success? What advice can you give to a young married man? And he says love your wife and don't be naughty and go to church. Okay, so. But anyway, um, I was going to uh, tease Zeke a little bit, but he's not here, so I'm probably going to tease him even more. But he's playing hooky tonight. He just had an opportunity to go to a Dodger game. And so, the, but DeLucas and he went to the Dodger game, so. Without a show of hands, who here in the congregation has been married over five years and has, no, 
Okay, don't, don't raise your hand yet, because I want that their marriage is a bliss, and there's, it's a honeymoon relationship, and they don't have any problems whatsoever. Okay, I see the sarcasm here. I see the sarcasm. Okay. Well, I was going to, if you raised your hands and you were really thinking that this is true, that was going to make you come up and teach, because that makes you more qualified than me. But, um, embarrassingly enough, we, we know it's true that the church doesn't have a better track record in marriage than the world does, because 50% of all marriages end in divorce, even in the church. And that's a sad thing to say. But anyway, we're going to uh, get into the text and uh, pray, and then we'll just see if we can learn some tools. Father, we just thank you so much that you've sent your Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us. And we just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would just teach us through your word, that you would just open up our hearts and our minds, that we would receive individually and as a married couple and those who aren't married, Lord, just tools that we can learn so that we can just glorify you in our marriage relationship. And we ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, I printed this in 16 font, hoping that I wouldn't need my glasses. But... It's still a little blurry. Well, then I would have had 30 pages instead of 19. Uh, we've been studying the book of Ephesians, um, as we've been studying. And chapters 1 through 3 spoke on the position of believers. We are chosen and sealed. We are saved by grace. We are united in one body. And we are equal in the body, the mystery. In the second half of uh, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, we learned and are continuing to learn the practice of believers, practical living in Christ. In chapter 4, we learned of the practice of believers in relation to other believers, the practice of believers in relation to spiritual gifts, the practice of believers in relation to the former life. And last week, in the beginning of chapter 5, the practice of believers in relation to evil, and the practice of believers in relation to the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to dive into one of our favorite subjects, the practice of believers in relation to home life, at least one aspect of home life, the marriage relationship. We're going to read the text now, but I want to back up to verse 18 of chapter 5 and then read through the end verse 33, to get the full gist of what Paul was trying to convey in this letter to the Ephesians concerning the Christian marriage. Verse 18 of chapter 5. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle 
or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I'm going to give you a few quotes tonight from a gentleman named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was born in 1899 and uh, lived till 1982, but he had an interesting life. He was uh, a medical doctor for a full career, and then he um, went to seminary and became a pastor. So he's a very uh, intellectual man and insightful man, and um, there's a lot of quotes that I'm going to be giving from him. The first one here is concerning this text. It says, The danger is that we should think of marriage amongst Christians as essentially the same as it is with everybody else. The only difference being that these two people happen to be Christians, whereas the others are not. Now, if that is still our conception of marriage, then we have considered this great paragraph entirely in vain. Christian marriage, the Christian view of marriage, is something that is essentially different from all views. And if I were to paraphrase what he stated here, it is this. We Christians have to view marriage totally different than the world does because this book, the Word of God, is our marriage instruction guide, counselor, arbitrator when issues arise. There is no other source we must reference when we need help. Ephesians 5.22 Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now we're going to camp here on this verse for a while, really digging into the meat of the subject of submit and as to the Lord. The word subject means submit. Now I'm sure that some of you are squirming in your seats right now and uh, there have been actually a few um, people that have stopped fellowshipping to the, or with this church because of this church's teaching on the subject of the marriage relationship or the Christian marriage relationship. Paul addressed the wives and their responsibility in the Christian marriage first. This isn't because they're a bigger problem or because they need special attention. The reason is the apostle was particularly concerned about this question of submission. That was the principle that he introduced in Ephesians 5.21. This aspect of submission has a particular application to wives in a Christian marriage. The same logic continues on in the text in Ephesians 6. Children are addressed before parents because Paul was primarily concerned with submission. Slaves are addressed before their masters because the apostle was primarily concerned about submission. There's no question that the apostle is continuing the thought from Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. In many of the best ancient Greek manuscripts, Ephesians 5.22 doesn't even have the word submit. It simply reads, wives to your own husbands. The topic of submission, and Paul focused on it particularly, or on a particular important realm of submission, the Christian marriage, from the wife unto the husband. 
It is as if Paul said this, I command you to submit to one another in a very general way. Now, if you do it in a general way, how much more so should wives do it to their own husbands in this special marriage relationship? To submit means that you recognize someone has legitimate authority over you. It means you recognize that there is an order of authority and that you are part of a unit, a team. You as an individual are not more important than the working of the unit or the team. When we submit to God, we recognize God's authority and act accordingly. When we submit to the police, we recognize the police's authority and act accordingly. And when we submit to our employer, we recognize our employer's authority and act accordingly. Submission does not mean inferiority, as well submission does not mean silence. Submission means submission. There's a hyphen in there. There is a mission for the Christian marriage, and that mission is obeying and glorifying God. That mission is more important than any of my individual desires. I'm not putting myself below my husband. I'm putting myself below the mission God has for our marriage, for my life. And when it says to your own husbands, this defines the sphere of a wife's submission. The Bible never commands a general submission of women unto men in society. This order is commanded only in the spheres of the home and in the church. God has not commanded in his word that men have exclusive authority in the areas of politics, business, education, and so on. As to the Lord, this is a crucial phrase. It colors everything else we understand about this passage. There have been two main wrong interpretations of this phrase, each favoring a certain position. The wrong interpretation that favors the husband says that as to the Lord means that a wife should submit to her husband as if he were God himself. The idea is you submit to God in absolutely everything without question. So you must submit to your husband in the same absolute way. This thinks that as to the Lord defines the extent of submission. This is wrong. It is true that the wife owes the husband a great deal of respect. Peter sets this across when he praises Sarah, the wife of Abraham, as an example of a godly wife when she called him Lord. That doesn't mean Lord in the sense of God, but Lord in the sense of master. That is a lot of respect. But still, it doesn't go as far as to say you submit completely to God, so you must submit to your husband the same way. Simply put, in no place does the scripture say that a person should submit to another in that way. There are limits to the submission your employer can expect of you. There are limits to the submission the government can expect of you. There are limits to the submission parents can expect of their children. In no place does the scripture teach an unqualified, without exception, submission, except to God and God alone. To violate this is to commit the sin of idolatry. The wrong interpretation that favors the wife says that as to the Lord means, I'll submit to him as long as he does what the Lord wants. Then the wife often thinks it is her job to decide what the Lord wants. This interpretation thinks that as to the Lord defines the limit of submission. This is wrong. It is true that there are limits to a wife's submission, but we will specifically discuss a few in, in a few moments. But when the wife approaches as to the Lord, 
in this way, then it degenerates into a case of I'll submit to my husband when I agree with him. I'll submit to him when he makes the right decisions and carries them out in the right way. When he makes a wrong decision, he isn't in the Lord. So I shouldn't submit to him then. That's not submission at all. Except for those who are just plain cantankerous and argumentative, everyone submits to others when they are in agreement. It's only when there is a disagreement that submission is tested. As to the Lord does not define the extent of a wife's submission. It does not define the limit of a wife's submission. It defines the motive of a wife's submission. Another quote from Lloyd-Jones concerning this is this. It means, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands because it is part of your duty to the Lord, because it is an expression of your submission to the Lord. Or wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Do it in this way. Do it as part of your submission to the Lord. In other words, you are not doing it only for the husband. You are doing it primarily for the Lord himself. You are doing it for Christ's sake. You are doing it because you know that he exhorts you to do it because it is well-pleasing in his sight and that you should be doing it. It is part of your Christian behavior. It is part of your discipleship. Now, there's, there's eight points here that I would like to discuss concerning what as to the Lord means. The first one is a wife's submission to her husband is part of her Christian life. The second one is when a wife doesn't obey this word to submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, she isn't only failing short as a wife, she's failing short as a follower of Jesus Christ. The third one, this is completely out of the realm of my nature or my personality. The fourth one, this is a different way to live, setting us apart from our culture. Number five, this has nothing to do with whether or not the husband is right on any particular issue. It has to do with Jesus being right. Six, this means that a woman should take great care in how she chooses her husband. Remember, ladies, this is what God requires of you in your marriage. This is his expectation of you. Instead of looking for an attractive man, instead of looking for a wealthy man, instead of looking for a romantic man, you'd better first look for a godly man you can respect. G. Campbell Morgan recalls the story of an older Christian woman who had never married, and she explained, I never met a man who could master me. She had the right idea. And the last one, if you want to please Jesus, if you want to honor him, then submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Lloyd-Jones said this, there can be no more compelling motive for any action than this. And every Christian wife who is concerned above everything else to please the Lord Jesus Christ will find no difficulty in this paragraph. Indeed, it will be her greatest delight to do what the apostle tells us here. So if there's any young unmarried ladies in this audience, take note. Submission to to a man who is not accountable to God in everything can be a difficult thing. So you better be absolutely sure the man that you fall in love with is the man God picked for you and that he loves God more than he loves you. There's one particular story that I wanted to tell. It's about a lady who used to attend this church decades ago. And when she started going to the church, um, she, well, she got saved and then started going to the church, but she had already been married and had children. And so at that point in her marriage relationship, she was not equally yoked. But that was 
something that happened after she got married. And her husband at first was intimidated by her newfound faith in the Lord. And um, he was not letting her take her children to church. And so she was very patient about this. And people were praying for her. And eventually, just her um, submission to him and her love for him and the change that he saw in her kind of overwhelmed him in a good way to the point where he started having more confidence that she wasn't going crazy on him and going to be this Jesus freak that was going to start doing weird things. So he started letting her take her children to church. And the whole time that they lived in this community, he never did come to church. But they eventually moved to Sandpoint, Idaho. And then he started going to church with his family and he got saved. So that's a pretty cool story because that kind of um, talks about that type of relationship in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 16 about the, the woman, about the unequally yoked marriage where the woman uh, shouldn't leave her husband because it might be her uh, uh, God-abiding submission to him that would draw him to Christ. And that was exactly what happened in that situation. Verses 23 and 24 are reasons for a Christian's wife, a Christian wife's submission. For the husband is head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is a savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. The command given in Ephesians 5.22 is difficult. God knows this, so he also includes reasons for his command. He wants us to understand the principle behind the command and to understand that God isn't simply making up rules. The first reason for a Christian wife's submission to her husband is found in Ephesians 5.22, in the words, as to the Lord. This means that the motive of her submission must be obedience and respect to Jesus instead of obedience and respect to her husband. For the husband is head of the wife. Paul states here the second reason for a wife's submission. It is because the husband is the head of the wife. In its full sense, head has the idea of headship and authority. It means to have the appropriate responsibility to lead and the matching accountability. It is right and appropriate to submit to someone who is our head. When you look at the biblical idea of headship in other passages such as 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Timothy 3, the emphasis is put constantly upon the fact that the man was created first and not the woman. So there is a natural priority for man. The scripture also emphasizes the fact that the woman was made out of man, taken out of the man to show a connection to him, and that she is meant to be a help for man. Lloyd-Jones says this, Notice that the apostles lay great stress upon it. Man was created first. Not only, but not only that, man was also made the Lord of creation. It was to man that this authority was given over the brute animal creation. It was man who was called upon to give them names. Here are indications that man was put into a position of leadership, lordship, and authority and power. He takes the decision, he gives the rulings. That is the fundamental teaching with regard to this whole matter. 1 Corinthians 11, 7-10 applies the same principle to the issue of leadership in the church. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But God is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. This passage makes the point clearly and strongly 
God created Adam first and gave him responsibility over Eve. This happened before the fall. Therefore, this passage makes it clear that before and after the fall, God ordained there be different roles between husband and wife. The difference in roles between husband and wife are not the result of the fall and are not erased by our new life in Jesus. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. What he is saying is that the woman is different, that she is the complement of man. What he does prohibit is that women should seek to be manly, that is, that a woman should seek to behave as a man, or that a woman should seek to usurp the place, the position, and the power which have been given to man by God himself. That is all he is saying. It is not slavery. He is not exhorting his readers to realize what God has ordained. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. Paul presents here a third reason for a Christian wife's submission to her husband. She should submit because the relationship of the husband and wife is a model of the union between Jesus and the church. The point is simple and clear. We have a model for the marriage relationship, the relationship between Jesus and the church. In that relationship, the headship of Jesus Christ is unquestioned. So also is the husband, the head of the team, that is the one flesh relationship of husband and wife. Perhaps the Christian wife doesn't want a head. Perhaps she doesn't want a leader of the team between husband and wife. If that is the case, the wife does not understand a biblical marriage and will always be working against it in one way or another. It is the same dynamic as a Christian saying that he doesn't want Jesus to be his head. Verse 23, and he is the savior of the body. We can understand how the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. Sometimes it's difficult to see how the husband is the savior of the body in the same way that Jesus is the savior of the body, that is the church. Lloyd-Jones exposes the problem. They ask, can you say that the husband is the savior of the wife as Christ is the savior of the church? That, they say, is nonsense. Christ, we know, died for the church. He saves us by his atoning death and by his resurrection. But you cannot say that about any other relationship. It's quite unique. But Lloyd-Jones thinks Paul used a wider understanding of the word Savior, which can simply mean preserver. 1 Timothy 4.10 speaks of Jesus being the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. How can Jesus be the Savior of all men? In the sense that he preserves all men and blesses all men with good things from heaven above. It is in this way that husbands are to be their wife's Savior. Paul essentially repeats the same idea in Ephesians 5:28 through 29. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Lloyd-Jones concludes this thought with this. What then is the doctrine? It is clearly this. The wife is the one who is kept, preserved, guarded, shielded, provided for by the husband. That is the relationship. As Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, so the husband nourishes and cherishes the wife. And the wife should realize that that is her position in this relationship. So, big question mark. Men, do you get this? Let's sum up the three reasons why a wife is to submit to her husband in a Christian marriage. 
It is part of her obedience to Jesus as to the Lord, number one. Number two, it is appropriate to the order of creation. The husband is the head of the wife. And third, it is appropriate because the model of the relationship between Jesus and the church, as also Christ is the head of the church, as the church is subject to Christ. If Paul stopped at Ephesians 5.24, it would be easy for a Christian wife to feel all that all the obligation were on her. Thankfully, he continues and shows what obligations the Christian husband has in marriage, but the Christian wife still has her obligations. Both husband and wife are called to die to self. Submission is the way the wife does it. Both husband and wife are called to sacrifice. Submission is the way the wife does it. Both husband and wife are called to see their marriage as a model of Jesus' relationship with the church. Submission is the way the wife does it and honors that model. Both husband and wife are called to honor the order of creation. Submission is the way the wife fulfills her place in that order. Both husband and wife are called to be motivated by the love and the command of Jesus. Submission is the way the wife does that. To their own husbands in everything, it says, Paul says that the wife should be subject to the husbands in everything. Does he really mean everything? This needs to be understood in the same way we understand submission in other spheres. For example, when Paul says in Romans 13 that the Christian must submit to the state, we understand there are exceptions. So what are the exceptions to everything? When the husband asks the wife to sin, she is free from her obligation to submit. This applies in the place of clearly biblical sin, such as signing a fraudulent tax return. It also applies in matters of true Christian conscience. But we must be very careful to distinguish between true Christian conscience and mere opinion. But the wife does not have to submit to a request to commit sin. When the husband is medically incapacitated or insane, she is free from her obligation to submit. A wife does not have to submit to the request a husband makes when he is insane or medically incapacitated. When the husband is physically abusive and endangers the safety of the wife or children, the wife is free from her obligation to submit. She does not have to submit to his violence. All right, wives, you're off the hook. Husbands, it's your turn. Verse 25a. The simple command to Christian husbands, love your wife. Husbands, love your wives. I'll say it one more time. Husbands, love your wives. Paul's word to Christian husbands safeguards his previous words to wives. Though wives are to submit to their husbands, it never excuses husbands acting as tyrants over their wives. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way, according to 2 Timothy 1.7, God has given us the sphere of power, but also of love. Power in their Christian life is always to be exercised in love. It is not naked power. It is not, not the power of a dictator or a little tyrant. It is not the idea of a man who assigns to himself certain rights and tramples upon his wife's feelings and so on and sits in the home as a dictator. No husband is entitled to say that he is the head of the wife unless he loves his wife. So the reign of the husband is to be a reign and a rule of love. 
It is a leadership of love. When it says love your wives, Paul used the ancient Greek word agape. Agape is the fourth word for love. We have eros and storge and phileo. Each speak about love that is felt. These describe instinctive love. Love that comes spontaneously from the heart. Paul assumes that eros, desire, or phileo, fondness, are present. Christians should not act as if these things do not matter in the marriage relationship. They do matter. But Paul's real point is to address a higher kind of love, agape love. It is a love more of decision than of the spontaneous heart. It is, a, it is as much a matter of the mind than the heart because it chooses to love undeserving. Agape really doesn't have much to do with feelings at all. It has to do with decisions. It can be defined as a sacrificial giving, absorbing love. The word has little to do with emotion. It has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. It is a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. It gives because it loves. It does not love in order to receive. We can read this passage and think that Paul is saying, husbands, be kind to your wives, or husbands, be nice to your wives. And there is no doubt that for many marriages, this would be a great improvement. But that isn't what Paul writes. What he really means is husbands continually practice self-denial for the sake of your wives. The standard and example of a Christian husband's love is found in verses 25b through 27. Let's go ahead and read that. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Just as Christ also loved the church, Jesus' attitude towards the church is a pattern for the Christian husband's love to his wife. This shows that the loveless marriage does not please God. It doesn't fulfill his purpose. This is, this is love given to the undeserving. This is love given first. This is love that may be rejected but still loves. I had a quote from Spurgeon to expound this thought, but it was so difficult to read that I would have messed it up and then I would have had to translate it. So I'm going to sum it up in terms of a garden because I like gardening. Guys, your wife is a flower and you're responsible to make her blossom. You'll need to get your hands dirty. For someone that doesn't like gardening, that can be a difficult thing, but that doesn't relieve you of that responsibility. If you don't tend your garden with loving and nurturing hands, watering her and giving her the right amount of nutrients, she will become wilted and eventually die. But if you do tender with loving and nurturing hands, she will blossom into a beautiful flower, a sweet-smelling aroma, a splendid sight to behold. Now the girls are probably going, aww. Aww. And the guys are thinking, come on, really? (laughs) But the guys that can see the wisdom in this analogy are not in hot water right now, okay? 
So guys, are you sacrificing your desires for that of your wives? Are you selfless in the way you treat your wife? We see other stickers on the back of our cars in the parking lot. Well, that slogan starts first in the home, and in the home it starts first with your wife. Guys, if you want your kids to have successful marriages, you must show them how by loving your wife. And then they will learn from your example. Some households don't have any PDA. That's public display of affection. This is not healthy for your wife or your children. Godly affection is contagious and nurturing. Our house is a home of huggers. And this will perpetuate, perpetuate down from our grandchildren to their children. <clears throat> Men, are you causing your wife to grow in the Lord? Or are you stunting her growth by your lack? Excuse me. <clears throat> Are you stunting her growth by your lack of spiritual leadership in the home? This is where the rubber meets the road, to, so to speak. Men are failing in being the spiritual leaders of their homes. Christian wives don't have a problem submitting to husbands when those husbands are fulfilling their spiritual responsibilities in the home. I'll give a prime example. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here because this is Thursday night. So maybe you should get this CD and give it to somebody that comes on Sunday morning. When women have a ladies' retreat, they will fill a roster of 120 to 130 ladies, and there'll be 10 on the waiting list. When men have a men's retreat, we're lucky to get 30 or 40, and they usually wait till the last minute to sign up. On the ladies' Bible study on Wednesdays, they teach in the morning and the evening, and they'll have 50 ladies showing up regularly. Now, on Saturday mornings, maybe it's my teaching, I don't know, but we're lucky to have 12 or 14 guys show up on a regular basis. So, with that said, men will have reasons slash or excuses to not get involved. Women just get involved. So when men give up the God-ordained role of spiritual leader of the home, the women will naturally pick up the reins and run with it. It is their nurturing nature. This is not how God intended it to be. This is backwards, and the home will end up in chaos and conflict. Verses 28 and 29 are the application of the principles to the duty of a Christian husband. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Ephesians 5:22 through 24 Paul gave three reasons for a Christian wife's submission to her husband. In addressing the Christian husband's Paul also gave three reasons to love their wife. First, they should love their wife this way because that is what love is. Paul indicates this in Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Second, they should love their wife this way because the relationship between husband and wife has a pattern. The relationship of Jesus and his church. Paul indicates this in Ephesians 5.25-29. Just as Christ also loved the church, so husbands ought to love their own wives, just as the Lord does the church. The third reason is found in Ephesians 5:28 through 32. The Christian husband must love his wife this way, because you are one with her, just as Jesus is one with the church. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
The single word as is very important. Paul does not say, and this is the new, the King James Version, so ought men to love their wives in the same way as they love their bodies. That would be an improvement in many cases, but that is not the meaning. The meaning is, so ought men to love their wives because they are their own bodies. A man must love his wife as his body as part of himself. As Eve was a part of Adam taken out of his side, so the wife is to the man because she is part of him. Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. The apostle puts it in this form in order that a husband may see that he cannot detach himself from his wife. You cannot detach yourself from your own body, so you cannot detach yourself from your wife. She is part of you, says the apostle. So remember that always. He who loves his wife loves himself. Simply said, when you love your wife, you benefit yourself. Perhaps it's better to put it in the negative. When you neglect your wife, you neglect yourself, and it will come back to hurt you. We all know what it is like to neglect something. For guys, it's like a noise or a maintenance issue on an automobile. If you don't deal with it, it'll come back to haunt you. Husbands, it is even more true regarding your wife because she is part of you. Guys, this isn't rocket science. A happy wife makes a happy house. Everybody knows that slogan. It is your responsibility to do your part to make her happy. Let's have a simple and practical application on communication. And trust me, this is note to self, because I'm not very good at this. This isn't for just husbands or guys, but women excel in the area of communication more naturally. Gary Smalley's book, The DNA of Relationship, has an excellent chapter called Emotional Communication, Listen with the Heart. His points are very helpful, and there are four of them listed here. One, listen beyond the words to the feelings. This is very important. Maybe your wife asks why you didn't arrive on time, or she says that she's angry that you forgot an appointment. Behind her anger is really a feeling that you don't care. She's hurt. Allow others' emotions to touch you. Don't say, you shouldn't feel like that, or just get over it. People feel loved when they know you care. Communication is understanding, not determining who's right. If you're always trying to prove you're right or the other person is wrong, nobody wins. Effective communication starts with safety. Criticism and threats cause others to shut down. Bottom line, let's all be better listeners. Let's be quick to hear and slow to speak. Proverbs 18.13 says this, To answer before listening, that is folly and shame. Boy, that hurts, because I do that all the time. Here's some active listening skills, guys. Don't multitask while listening. I get accused of that often enough. Glancing at your phone screen or watching the TV or a TV, uh, TV message that messages to them that you're only half there. Ask a few questions that show you're interested. Reaffirm by saying things like, that's interesting, or I hear you. She's, she's laughing because she knows that I... She, she, she basically goes like this. <laughs> when, when she's got my eyes on her eyes and, and I'm not looking distracted and doing something else, she knows that she's got at least 80% of my attention. Because even if I'm looking at her, I still might be out there on the golf course somewhere, you know. <laughs> 
And I get in trouble for that because she always qu quizzes me later. Okay, I'm going to do a Bonnieism here. This is her quote. If you don't listen to your spouse in the little things, and this is mostly men, you make them feel devalued. Like what they have to say is not important. Even if they are talking about something that you're not interested in. If they're saying it, then it's important to them and should be important to you. That goes both ways, girls. Not listening with attentiveness can hurt you and your wife and can cause conflict. Verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Any man in his right mind is going to take care of his own flesh, even if it is just in the sense of feeding and clothing and caring for his own body. He doesn't know, or he knows that if he doesn't, he's going to suffer for it. In the same way, once we know the Bible, in the same way, once we know the biblical fact of this unity, if we are in our right minds, we will nourish and cherish our wives because she is part of us. Just as the Lord does the church, the principle of oneness also is dominant in the relationship between Jesus and his people. There is oneness of life. We share the same vital resurrection life that resides in Jesus himself. There is oneness of service. We are privileged to be co-workers with our Lord. There is oneness of feeling. Jesus feels a unique sympathy with us, and we feel a unique sympathy with him. There is oneness in mutual necessity. We cannot exist without him, and he cannot exist without us in the sense that a redeemer is not a redeemer without any redeemed, and a savior is not a savior without any saved. There is oneness of nature. The same genetic code links us with our savior, and we are partakers of the divine nature. There is oneness of possession. We share in the riches of his glory, both now and in the age to come. There is oneness of present condition. When our Savior is lifted high, so are his people with him. There is oneness of future destiny. We will be glorified with him. Verses 30 through 32 explain the mystical union between Jesus and the church in its relation to marriage. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. When it talks about for when we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones, Paul here brings the analogy back in a circle. First, the relationship between Jesus and the church spoke to us about the husband-wife relationship. Now the marriage relationship speaks to us about the relationship between Jesus and his people. With the same intimacy, love, and sharing that an ideal husband and wife share, Jesus wants to live with his people. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul quoted this essential passage from Genesis 2.24. Relevant to marriage, it shows that just as the first man and the first woman were one, she was taken from him and then brought back to him. So it could be said of every married man today that he is joined to his wife. God did the joining. Husbands can resent it. They can resist it. They can ignore it. 
but that doesn't change the fact. It shows a fundamental principle for promoting oneness in marriage. There must be a leaving a former, of former associations and a cleaving joining together as one. The marriage relationship must have Christ as the center and focal point. Early on in Bonnie and mine's marriage, we went to an enjoying marriage weekend with Ron and Betty Wiseman. Ron has uh, since gone home to be with the Lord, but there are still principles that we learned from that weekend that we still apply to our family today. And one of them is the um, marriage relationship triangle. I'm sure many of you have probably heard this, but it's just one that always sticks in my mind and it, it makes so much sense, it's worth repeating. And if you haven't heard it, it's, it's a good tool. If you look at a trial of equal sides, you've got a husband down here, you've got the wife here, and Jesus Christ up here. And the two will only become closer together in their marriage relationship as they draw closer to the Lord, eventually perfectly uniting with one. As we know, the threefold cord is hard to break. But then you look at it uh, from a different perspective. If you have, say, the wife that is growing closer to the Lord, and the husband is not. Their distance apart spiritually is going to be far. It'll never get closer. And it goes the same way. If the husband is the one drawing closer to the Lord and the wife is not, then their relationship is never going to be as close as it can be. It'll always be this far apart. It's only when the two grow continually to the Lord until they get to be one with Christ will that be the perfect marriage relationship. And I just think that's a pretty cool tool. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It would be easy to think that the Genesis 2.24 passage, also quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19.5, only speaks about marriage. Paul wants us to know that it also speaks about the relationship between Christ and the church. This is true in regard to the pattern of the first man and the first woman. Lloyd-Jones explains it this way. Woman was made... Am I done? <laughs> All right. I guess. All right. I know this doesn't record as well, but I'll try to talk into it. <clears throat> this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It would be easy to think that Genesis 2.24 passage, also quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19.5, only speaks about marriage. Paul wants us to know that it also speaks about the relationship between Christ and the church. This is true in regard to the pattern of the first man and the first woman, and Lloyd-Jones explains it this way. Woman was made out of the beginning, at the beginning as the result of an operation which God performed upon man. How does the church come into being? As the result of an operation which God performed on the second man, his only begotten, beloved son on Calvary's hill. A deep sleep fell upon Adam. A deep sleep fell upon the Son of God. He gave up the ghost. He expired. And there in that operation, the church was taken out. As the woman was taken out of Adam, so the church is taken out of Christ. The woman was taken out of the side of Adam, and it is from the Lord's bleeding, wounded side, that the church comes. It is also true in regard to the pattern of marriage in general. It shows us that Jesus wants more than just 
an external surface relationship. It shows us that Jesus wants us to be one with him. It shows us that there is a sense in which Jesus is incomplete without us. Adam was incomplete without Eve. We can say that Eve makes up the fullness of Adam and makes up that which was lacking in him. And that is exactly what the church does for Jesus. Ephesians 1.23 says of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Verse 33 is a summary comment to husbands and wives. And because I already had to knock out seven and a half pages of notes, I can't expound on this, so I'm just going to read it. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let us pray. Father, we just praise you for your word. We praise you, Father, for the exhortation to us about marriage. And Father, we just pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just encourage us to love our wives the way you loved us, Lord. Sacrificially, undeservedly, Lord, you you just loved us when we were unlovable. And I know that uh, our wives are deserving of our love. But Father, we just need to be able to um, just utilize that agape love towards one another in the marriage relationship, Lord. And we need to be putting others before ourselves, especially in the marriage relationship, Lord. And so we just pray, Father, that you would just be glorified in the Christian marriage. Lord, and we just want to honor you and thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.